Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast in the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and today we're going to be talking about pangolin and other wildlife trade in Africa, the challenges in tackling it, and possible solutions. Uh, just a few years ago, these shy-scaled mammals were said to be the most trafficked species you've never heard of, poached for their meat and for their scales, which are primarily used in traditional Chinese medicine. Pangolins became much more famous after they were potentially connected to the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic and, most recently, our investigations have revealed that Western Central Africa have become the epicentre for pangolin-scale trafficking to Asia by well-organised transnational criminal groups. Joining me to talk about the reasons for this are Chris Hamley, AIA's senior pangolin campaigner, and we're particularly pleased to welcome two of the partners with whom we work closely on the ground. Adams Kasinga, the founding director of Conserve Congo in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Vincent Opayeni, the CEO and founder of the Natural Resource Conservation Network in Uganda. Now, Chris, before we jump into the specific issues of pangolin trade, could you start us off with an overview of how your campaign works with Adams and Vincent? Sure. So in our campaigning efforts to end the transnational trade in pangolins, we are focusing on West, Central and East Africa as major sourcing, transit and export areas for pangolin products trafficked internationally, particularly to countries such as Vietnam and China. Um, we have been working in Uganda with Natural Resource Conservation Network for a number of years now, um, and we are we are focused on doing investigations into the criminal networks involved in pangolin trafficking, but we've also been working quite closely with NRCN to implement projects to strengthen criminal justice responses within Uganda to combat wildlife trafficking. Um, with Conserve Congo and DRC, DRC is a major source country for pangolin scales that are being trafficked both eastwards through Uganda, but also to countries in West Africa, such as Nigeria. Um, and we started working with Conserve Congo towards the end of 2020, um, collaborating on investigations into how pangolins and other wildlife products such as elephant ivory are being sourced in the forests uh, of the Congo Basin and then trafficked by criminal groups, um, both out of DRC directly to Asia, but also across borders into countries such as Uganda and Central African Republic. Um, yeah, both organisations do really great work and happy to be on this conversation today with Adams and Vincent. Excellent stuff. Well, thank you very much for that, Chris. Um, Adams, if I could turn to you first. Uh, the, Demo the Democratic Republic of the Congo is a major source country for pangolins and other wildlife products being trafficked internationally. How does this trade work and what sort of impact is it having on your country? Yes. Uh, in fact, we in the DRC, we have about 80% of uh, the Congo Basin forest. Uh, the Congo occupies the center of the continent of Africa. We are the only country in Africa with about nine borders. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, these borders are quite porous, unfortunately. So there is a lot of uh, unregulated movements of individuals and goods in and out of the country. And uh, looking at the 
at the size of the forest that we are having, every country in our neighborhood have got interests in our country in terms of uh, products from wildlife. And uh, since wildlife is equally uh, not only a natural asset, but also a natural heritage for our nation, it does impact us at every aspect of our life. It uh, affects us negatively in terms of uh, health. You recall that since 1976, we've had about 11 outbreaks of Ebola. Uh, it has affected our economy because uh, you look at countries such as Kenya, for instance, which has got no single mine, but because of tourism, it, it's got a, a very thriving economy. And in the DRC, tourism based on fauna and flora is almost non-existent. And that's because uh, natural resources are being plundered by criminals. It is also affecting our security and sovereignty because most of the armed groups, which uh, mainly are based in the eastern part of the country, they have found a safe haven within our national parks. They actually understand these national parks better than uh, security agencies. And therefore, revenue which is being generated from uh, the sale of these uh, wildlife products are the same uh, revenues which acquire guns, which are bringing in insecurity in the country. So uh, if you've been watching news lately, you're going to see that some areas of the Eastern DRCs haven't known peace for the last th uh, 30 years. And lately, for the last two weeks, it has been really hot in some areas where people are being murdered every day. And in this case, people don't, just don't get killed, but uh, animals also get killed in the process uh, for their ivory, for their scales, for their bones, for their hides. And uh, that is quite destabilizing for a young and emerging country such as ours. Indeed. Uh, Vincent, could you tell us about the role that Uganda plays as a major transit hub for wildlife trafficking networks in the region? Yeah, thank you. Um, Uganda is um, one of the countries that um, get a lot of tourism from wildlife, but uh, Uganda is bordered by countries like uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, South Sudan, Kenya, and also Tanzania. And some of the countries that we are that are bordering us are not so peaceful at the moment and uh, one of the countries that is not so peaceful is the democratic republic of congo and uh, south sudan and because the neighboring countries are not so peaceful there is a tendency of wildlife traffickers crossing to these countries and mobilizing a bulk of wildlife products in terms of a pangolin scale and ivory and moving them to Uganda. And the reason why they have chosen Uganda as a place for collection and then they start distributing in small bits is because the law was initially very weak. And if they are arrested and they have money in the pocket, they can easily pay fines in court and get away with it. And the second reason for doing this is that uh, Corruption is at a high level, and they believe that if money is still there, you can do everything and get away with it. You cannot be successfully prosecuted. But of late, there have been amendments in the laws, though the, the, the amendment did not take care of um, 
the minimum kind of uh, fines and it has left a lot of rooms for the magistrates and for the judges to play around with. It has given a lot of discretions and powers to judicial officers. And this has somehow impacted on conservation of uh, pangolins and other wildlife species because if somebody have money, he can negotiate with court and pay lesser fine and also get lesser sentence. So basically, we most most um, wildlife traffickers prefer Uganda because they cannot get to jail and serve uh, large numbers of years in jail or pay large amount of money in fines, but they can easily get away with it when they have money by paying small fines. So is, is it fair to say that the uh, wildlife criminals see Uganda as a bit of a uh, a safe haven slash soft touch somewhere that you know that they they can work without too much risk of getting caught and if they do get caught they can buy themselves out of it quite easily i agree that is the position that's uh, not not encouraging uh chris uh, i understand that uganda's um, hasn't been coming up much as an origin country um, in terms of pangolin scales or elephant ivory and rhino horn being seized elsewhere but we do know from your research on the ground that there's still high volumes of wildlife crime happening. Um, what's the reason for this? Yes, well, over the past six years, we've seen a massive growth in the quantities of illicit wildlife products being trafficked from countries like Nigeria. Um, many, multiple, multiple tons, um, volumes that seem to far exceed what was trafficked out of East Africa in the preceding 10 years. Um, and alongside that, there have been much fewer international level seizures linked to places such as Uganda. Um, now, it's, it's difficult to clearly articulate the reason for this, um, but East Africa has done a lot to combat wildlife trafficking over the past five years. Um, there have been special wildlife crime enforce, enforcement units established and there have been organizations such as NRCN that have done a lot of work to make um, involvement in wildlife trafficking a much more risky enterprise. Um, so there's the possibility that that is having an impact. Um, so traffickers are engage, engaging in less wildlife trafficking. However, you know, we do know that there continues to be significant levels of pangolin and other types of wildlife trafficking happening. Um, I know that NRCN have recently seized, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilograms of pangolin scales, and these are being consolidated and exported from Uganda, um, either via maritime means, so through Kenya and out through that way, or through um, air cargo, um, through Entebbe International Airport. Um, so without a doubt, it, it's still continuing. And we can see that also with the work that Adams is doing um, in BRC. There's a significant volume of, of wildlife products being trafficked across the border into Uganda. Um, and while, as Vincent was saying, while there has been some efforts made to combat some of the trafficking networks, it is this sort of high level impunity um, around the more senior levels of the trafficking network that is that means that um trafficking at an international level can still take place 
Just so that um, people listening can have a, a, a broader picture of, of what's going on, where, where is all this um, illegal wildlife trade heading to? What are the major kind of user countries or recipient countries of, say, pangolin scales and the ivory being shipped out? So um, the major consumer countries are in East and Southeast Asia. So historically, China was the main consumer market for elephant ivory, um, but they closed their market a few years ago. And we've seen a, a shift in demand to other countries within Asia, such as uh, Cambodia. Um, but then when it comes to pangolin scales, the major consumer markets are countries such as China and Vietnam. And actually in China, there is a, a legal domestic market in which um, pharmaceutical companies and hospitals are licensed by the Chinese government to utilize pangolin scales and, and produce products that are sold on a, on a legal market. Um, so yeah, so most of the, the products are, are being trafficked to Southeast and East Asia. Thanks very much indeed for that. Um, Adams, if I could come back to you, um, what particular challenges is the DRC facing when it comes to tackling wildlife crime? Yes, uh, that's a brilliant one. Um, we are faced with uh, many challenges. The first one being that not many people understand uh, the place and the role of uh, the DRC in the illegal wildlife trafficking uh, um, across the globe. Yet, I do believe that we are probably one of the top two or, or top three in the world currently. And that's because mainly we have had other many challenges pertaining to human rights violations and you find that the media has a particular focus on such issues, and uh, that leaves, it overshadows the issue of wildlife trafficking. <clears throat> we also have a challenge of corruption. Uh, in fact, in my own words, I always insist that corruption is the greasing mechanism for the wildlife trafficking machinery. In a sense that without corruption, there will be almost no wildlife trafficking. Here you find a lot of officials and uh, officers who are supposed to be taking care of these uh, uh, these natural resources. Instead, they are willing to give it up for a very minimal price for basically egocentric uh, gains. You also have a challenge in terms of security. Our security is very fragile. Looking at the size of our country, and the amount of uh, security agents we have is quite uh, inconsiderable. And uh, therefore, you find that most security agencies focus on urban areas, yet three quarters of our country is actually rural, and I would actually even say rustic, where uh, the protected areas are. So there's so many things happening in those areas that government and uh, security officials are not aware of. We also have a challenge in the same angle as uh, the size, uh, term, in terms of uh, the size of our country. We have a challenge of accessibility. It's very expensive to travel within our country. It's, uh, some areas are still landlocked uh, that you cannot actually even find a flight going to such areas. Yet it's in these areas that you find uh, a variety, a very a variety and considerable amount of uh, wildlife that we are supposed to be protecting. We also face a challenge of not having enough support internationally in terms of uh, grants 
and uh, and funding. Uh, you find that in the DRC we have other other emergencies or priorities, and most international donors and funders are not willing to fund wildlife issues. They prefer perhaps funding human rights issues or or security issues and so on and so forth. We are also faced with other challenges that not so many organizations at grassroots level are implicated in the in the fight against wildlife trafficking. Currently, Conserve Congo is the only organization locally tackling this issue. And uh, clearly looking at our size and looking at the size of the country, looking at the size of the problem, we are still very minute. Uh, even though we are trying hard and on a daily basis with the support coming from other partners such as EIA, we are really increasing uh, the results of the, of the struggle, but still, it's still quite minute compared to the problem. Also, we are faced with the challenge of, uh, of the justice system as well as uh, communities in general. Most people do not understand why, why we have to prohibit people from consuming bushmeat, for instance. And that's because uh, of ignorance. People have not been sufficiently educated on how to sustainably use resources. Uh, you find also that most judges, prosecutors, and magistrates are not aware of laws which uh, protect wildlife. They prefer focusing on laws which uh, protect humans and their and their goods or and their properties. Well, we also face the challenge of uh, of uh, communication in terms of uh, of security agencies. Congo is one of those countries which is isolated, which is not having uh, an adequate communication with other international bodies. Uh, for instance, we right now we are having about two tons of pangolin scales, which were seized in Congo Brazzaville, about two kilometers away, and our government struggles to get that contraband back into our country. So the communication between national agencies and international agencies is quite uh, affected negatively that uh, they don't really communicate the way they're supposed to, unlike in other countries such as Kenya, perhaps Uganda and South Africa. So those are some of the challenges, but I guess the challenges go beyond what I have just mentioned. It sounds like um, almost everything is, 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 is needs attention and everything is vaguely interrelated. Yes, that's, that's true. Um, Vincent, the same question to you. Uh, what specific challenges are you dealing with in Uganda? Our challenges are not any different from what is happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo that has been enumerated very clearly by Adams. But uh, I want to add a few other challenges that we get through that was not mentioned. And the first one is about uh, how we value wildlife in our communities. Wildlife is located in protected areas and very few Ugandans go to the protected area to see wildlife. And they believe that conservation issues is something foreign, it's not something for Ugandans, not something for the local community because they don't see a very clear benefit of conservation trickling down at household level. 
And this is happening because government normally make collections from gate entries and 20% is shared by the local people. Now, the manner in which 20% is shared leave a lot of uh, loopholes because it is given to the community leaders and the community leaders try to direct it, direct it along the political affiliation. If you support a particular party, then there you will receive the money. If you don't support a particular leader, you are most likely not going to receive the money. So this, instead of promoting conservation, tend to promote uh, division among people who are supposed to conserve within a particular area and you find other groups are conserving, then other groups are fighting. Then another thing is uh, the issue of collaboration between conservation NGOs. Conservation NGOs are many, but they seem not to be coordinated and collaborating in doing conservation work. And because of that, there's a lot of duplications among different NGOs. And the same thing applies to government entities. So many government entities who would have enforced the laws, who would have done conservation work effectively, but when it comes to collaboration and coordination, it is not effectively done. A particular body like police would have worked with Uganda Wildlife Authority, worked with the Office of the Director of Public Prosecution and the Judiciary to ensure that the laws are effectively enforced. Don't seem to be doing that. There's one party trying to do the work. The other party is saying, oh, what you're doing is not a serious issue. You are not dealing with serious crime. You're dealing with minor crime. So your work does not so much add value. And that caused a lot of challenges. Then... Uh, uh, alongside that is a serious question of corruption, where there is high level of corruption, it's very hard to do conservation. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for that. It brings me rather neatly to um, the final question I'm going to ask um, of all of you. Um, obviously, we've heard about some of the uh, problems in terms of illegal wildlife trade. We've heard about the specific problems in your countries as to how to begin to address them. Um, what do you think are the potential solutions to wildlife trade in your respective countries and what kind of role can civil society organisations such as ours play um, when it comes to ending it? Uh, perhaps, Adams, I'll start with you. Right. Um, that is a very brilliant question and uh, I'm going to speak in the context of uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo where we operate from and where I am from. Um, the issue of wildlife trafficking has become so complex, it has actually gotten out of hand that it requires not just one solution. It would really be unfair of me to say there is one particular uh, solution which could curb the entire uh, scourge of wildlife trafficking. However, as Conserved Congo, these are the ideas that we think would uh, assist in alleviating the situation as it is right now. Number one is education. We need to keep communicating with our communities, which is the base, which is uh, the genesis of everything. If the communities and once the communities understand the battle that we are fighting for, it is going to be difficult for any other individual to intrude these communities and deceive them any anyhow. And uh, we do not just have to communicate with the communities. We also have to communicate with the uh, decision makers. And here I'm talking particularly about the justice system. We need to bring the prosecutors, the judges, the magistrates on board, because at the end of the day, 
if the community is playing along, but they are not uh, playing along, it's going to jeopardize everything which would have worked for. But if we all sing in unison, then definitely we are going to find uh, an everlasting impact in terms of uh, knowledge and education. Uh, number two, I believe that we need to enforce the law. Uh, the laws here in the DRC are not really enforced. And when I talk about enforcing the laws, that includes having uh, people who are well-trained, people who are, have got the abilities to tackle the crimes. Uh, we are talking about people who go beyond uh, corruption. We are talking uh, leadership. We are talking adequate uh, implementations. And I'm talking here about police officers and uh, everybody else involved, including park rangers. In other countries, they do have a specific unit of the police which focuses on environmental crimes. Here in the DRC, for instance, we do not have it. And you find that we as the civil society, we play that role. We, we breach that gap and uh, we share the intelligence that we find with law enforcement. Hence, uh, operations of arrests occur. However, the last point in which is the most controversial is going to be we need to fight poverty and un unemployment. Uh, whether some other people, especially from the West, would want to agree or not, sometimes poverty and unemployment can push people to do what they were not supposed otherwise to, to be doing. And in most cases, we have found that. And sometimes somebody will go to the forest, for instance, in the case of the pangolin. In the last 20 years, for instance, villagers in our communities used to eat pangolin meat. It's supposed to be a delicacy. And they wouldn't kill so many. They would kill like one and eat it as part of uh, their, their protein supplement in their nutrition. But once they started doing that, they heard the word that, hey, with the scales, you can make much more money. Now they started killing them in thousands, in hundreds of thousands. So uh, bringing small projects, in our case, like agricultural projects, and uh, this is specific to the DRC. I wouldn't encourage that in a country like Brazil, for instance, where agriculture is also part of the problem. However, here, um, uh, subsistence farming is another way that could be not only an option to poaching, but it's going to be another way of uh, ensuring food security. And that could change a lot in the game. So for now, uh, those are the points. Perhaps adding on to the other one is to work in unison. It is unfair that you could be doing one work which is being undone by another organization or another group of individuals. So communication going amongst ourselves as civil society is going to help. And like Vincent said, this would help in not double booking. It does not help having so much funds for people doing, for 10 groups of people doing the same thing. But if we are communicating, there is a way to share uh, the tasks. We say this one takes from here to here and these other ones take from here to there. And uh, I believe with those points, we can be able to, to move uh, a very great milestone. I'm not sure what uh, Vincent has got to say about that, but that's what I think on my side. Thank you. Vincent? I had a few things from, uh, on, on what Adams have just said. 
And um, the first thing that we need to do in order to address wildlife trafficking issues in Uganda particularly would be to strengthen collaboration because you cannot work effectively alone in dealing with wildlife trafficking, considering that even the traffickers themselves organize themselves in group and they're very organized in whatever they do. So collaboration is key among partners. There should be national collaboration, regional collaboration, and international collaboration. And collaboration is working effectively for us because we are able to reach where we cannot physically reach, but we can communicate to our partners like EIA, get a lot of information from them. They help us do some part of our work. Then when we put all the pieces and bits together, we are ready to go after the bad guys. Another thing is um, the level of information sharing. It appears quite a number of organizations keep information to themselves. And yet it is very important to share every bit and piece of information that you have on a particular trafficker with people who should get to know and take action. If we do that, because the, the, the bad people normally have like their bank accounts in another country, then they have their product in one country. So if you are able to share information, then somebody on the other side will be in a position to get you the information that you are lacking and you can put your work together, then eventually be in a position to prosecute. And one other thing is also about prosecuting these people, having them pay fines, and leaving them with all the monies that they have accumulated from the legal trade. I think it is very important that we start following these fellows strictly to ensure that every money that they have accumulated from illegal trade, every wealth that they have built from illegal trade is recovered and taken back into conservation. Because every time we just scratch them a little and leave them with everything, they are very happy about it. They just say, after all, I have all the benefit with me and I still I can still continue trading without any problem. Then another thing that we also have to address is the issue of um, the population that is increasing, like in Uganda. We have so many youth that are redundant, not doing anything. After arresting them and asking them a question like, what is the problem? Somebody will tell you that, I have no job, so what do you expect me to do? So I think government should plan for the population that is coming up, the youth population. Because if we just keep having many youth coming up, many young people coming up, and there's no plan to engage them into other developmental issues, then we are most likely going to have a, a big challenge. Then another thing is also the issue of environmental degradation. A lot of our environment have been highly degraded. It is not like what it is before. And I think government should look into that and try to do something to ensure that we have the environment restored somehow. There must be a restoration program so that we have enough land cover to care for wildlife. Otherwise, wildlife will be straying on private land. And when it gets to private land, people are not ready to look after them, but instead they're ready to turn them into food. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, Chris, perhaps you could um, round things up with um, your views on uh, what the solutions might be and how we can all work together to be better. Absolutely. I'd definitely echo everything that Adams and Vincent have said. And 
you know, fighting corruption, uh, training and building capacity of law enforcement agencies, um, building awareness and ensuring that there's the political will to combat wildlife crime and trafficking is are absolutely essential. Um, wildlife trafficking and overexploitation of wildlife is a key driver of biodiversity loss, which is affecting ecosystems across the planet. So fighting it is really key to the future sustainability of, of humans' presence on planet Earth. Um, and I think there's a lot of responsibility that sits with those consumer countries for internationally trafficked wildlife, such as pangolin scales and, and elephant ivory. Um, but it's a very difficult question. Um, and the techniques to reducing demand are, are often disputed. And there's lots of different options that governments can take. But, you know, if we're looking at countries such as China, um, the role of its wildlife protection law and the legal market for pangolin scales, for instance, is without a doubt, playing a big role in driving the trafficking. Um, but there also you know, needs to be an approach that also takes into account the sort of cultural aspects that are driving the consumption of globally threatened wildlife. So that is an important component as well. Um, and just adding on what Vincent and Adams have said when it comes to law enforcement, um, you know, to ensure that we are increasing the levels of risk to traffickers involved in wildlife trafficking, um, it is essential that governments prioritise the targeting of the high and mid levels of these trafficking networks. Um, these are the people that are benefiting the most from the trade. They're the ones organising it um, and running the criminal enterprise. And if we're able to demobilise the activities, it can have a um, significant impact, um, especially in those countries across the trade chain. Um, so that's what I would add. Um, great to have this conversation today with Adams and Vincent. So I'd just like to thank them for, for getting on for the conversation. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, thank you all, um, Adams, Vincent and Chris. Um, it's been really interesting to get these kind of perspectives. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, gents, and hope you can um, come back at some point in the future and um, we can we can chat about how the work's going. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us, and wherever you are, stay safe out there.